Thanks for tuning in to Beyond the Bench. This is a podcast for athletic directors, coaches, and leaders, and it's done by three athletic directors from Iowa. I'm Todd Gordon from Greene County in Jefferson, and I'll be joined by Scott Jarvis from Ankeny Centennial and Aaron Stecker from Cedar Rapids Kennedy. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to leave us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at beyondthebenchgls at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and let's get to today's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the Bench, and you are listening live in your uh, podcast arena to episode 30 of season two. So here we are, guys. We are about three-fourths of the way through season two, and... Uh, a week or so away from the start of school. Another uh, will, will be an eventful fall, I'm sure, mm-hmm. and a different fall, but uh, one that I know we're all looking forward to. But uh, Scott, Aaron, uh, great to see you tonight. How's everything over in the uh, 319, Aaron? Uh, doing well. Thought we were going to get lucky, get some rain today. Uh, <laughs> and, and nope, it just fell apart right as it got Cedar Rapids. We, we believe, you know, we've got we, the payload nuclear plant out there, Todd. We, we, we believe that's kind of like the storm splitter. And anytime a storm <laughs> comes towards us, barreling down, we're going to get that rain we need right now. Nope. It's the payload and just whoosh, splits around us. It's like parting the waters. That's kind of been Iowa in general, I think, the same yeah, way in uh, Greene County, for sure. Yeah. Scott, how are things Newton and Ankeny? They're going well. I am uh, looking forward to getting started tomorrow, getting the kids back into school. Uh, getting them going on the on the volleyball court, football field, and cross country runners are ripping and raring to go. So here we go. It's going to be an go. eventful fall. It will be. It will be. Well, I hope uh, all the ads out there have had some time to kind of relax and rejuvenate. You know, this week I kind of spent I spent up at the lake, and uh, today this whole weekend in, in particular, I got to do the three things that always make me feel good. I got to smoke some meat. And I did my bologna. Saw that. I was say, how was, how was the bologna? Yep. I saw it. I saw it. Yep. So we got to smoke some meat. Got some vinyl records going. So listen to some old vinyl. And mm. uh, today I got to play some golf. So, man, I, I guess I'm ready to go back to work. And I better go back to work because I got my uh, hobby stuff done now. Hey, hey I, I got to tell you, Todd, I, I did get a record player now. You and did? I, I pulled out my Frank Sinatra and my own Deed Mart records. And I... I had them going just the other day. So I was really? thinking of you. I was thinking of you when I pulled them out. I love it. See, we get, uh, I've gotten a couple people addicted to vinyl again, just because I keep bugging them. Yeah. Uh, not good. That's good stuff. Well, Aaron, how about we, uh, pay our first bill tonight? How about a little hometown ticketing? Little hometown ticketing. I talked actually with, with Mike Perry again, actually this week, looking to, to get him getting set up for our, uh, out of Kingston saying for football. Um, we're just putting a lot of thought into all of our ticket takers out there and, and making sure their contact is out there. So Mike and I were talking with hometown ticketing and getting him hooked up with our district uh, CFO. Um, so, Hey, if you're an AD interested in saving time or making your job a little less stressful, are you looking for ways to improve the fan experience at your games? Well, if you are beyond the bench, 
Todd, Scott, and I suggest you take a good look at Hometown Ticketing. Uh, Hometown Ticketing provides the schools with everything needed to offer professional-level online ticketing at absolutely no cost to your school or athletic program. Hometown integrates industry-leading technology directly into your existing school or athletic website. This provides your fans with a simple and easy ticket-buying experience that takes place directly on your website without the need to create an account, remember a password, or download another app. From individual game tickets to customized season pass programs, our friends at Hometown Ticketing can customize an entire ticketing platform for your program. And the best part is it doesn't cost your school or athletic program anything to get started. So check them out at www.hometownticketing.com to get going on that today. And, you know, they're adding a pretty cool feature. Um, and as we start talking about maybe having to uh, restrict fans. Um, and so they've actually got a, uh, a feature in there. If you need to restrict your fan numbers, they'll do fan counts, uh, nice. ticket sales and stuff for you as well. So good That's stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I was actually going to ask them too. We're going to, my assistant's meeting with them tomorrow. I was going to ask them, you know, along with that fan count, if they could somehow do coupon codes where you give, you could give two kids, you know, you give a kid their coupons for three tickets. I don't know mm -hmm. if we can do that or not. Was that in their talk at all? Not in what we talked about the other day or yesterday, no. But, but that's Just total fan count? Yep. yep. Total, total number of tickets? Gotcha. Okay. Well, Scott, our other, uh, one of our other sponsors, we are about to crank up our social media again to a yeah. fervent level. That's and, right. And uh, Gipper can help us do that. Want your athletic program to stand out on social media? Now you can with Gipper. Using Gipper, you can create an, and share professional sports graphics to social media in seconds on any device and without needing any design experience. Try Gipper for free at gogipper.com backslash athletics. Absolutely. They keep adding features too. I mean, they're just so responsive and uh, everything they're adding is top notch. And um, I know we appreciate using them and, uh, helping with our social media. Also, a big thanks to Varsity Bound, Varsity Bound HQ, uh, for their work and uh, their help uh, this summer. And I know we're all going to continue, the three of us, I know, and many more, continue with the COVID screening part of the app and uh, making that easier for our coaches, our kids, got in the habit of doing that this summer. And again, thanks to Varsity Bound and all the stuff they'll do with all of our stats and everything they put together for us for Varsity Bound HQ. So thank you to all of our sponsors, Hometown Ticketing, Gipper, and Varsity Bound. And now we are thrilled and really excited to welcome our guests today, um, Walter Bond and Scott. Uh, we're going to kick this to you. Yep. And I don't know if you have this in your intro or not, but you have to share your story I, of your I, Walter I, Bond I experience. Yes, I will. Well, Walter travels the country speaking and coaching teaching and inspiring companies, schools, um, and people across uh, a wide range of industries from financial service to agriculture uh, to franchising and real estate and many more, including schools. And at any given time, you can find Walter leading a mastermind class, offering one-on-one -on -one professional development and hosting book talks and coaching hungry business leaders and entrepreneurs towards success. While many know Walter as a former NBA player, more and more people know Walter as a passionate and motivated speaker, author, and business coach with one goal, to help people see their full potential. 
Walter graduated from the University of Minnesota and has been married to his wife and business partner, Antoinette, for nearly 30 years, and they have three children. And Walter, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it is absolute honor. Um, I got, I just told him this before the show, I actually met Walter Bond a number of year ago, uh, years ago while I was a college student. Uh, a couple of my friends and I went to the Timberwolves game, and uh, we're just a bunch of little kids from Worthington, Minnesota, heading up to the big city. And uh, we went up and watched Golden State and the Timberwolves play a game. And just by chance, uh, we were at a restaurant Walter and his wife were in, and we actually lost our car in the Mall of America parking lot. And Walter actually, and I was like, hey, man, guys, that's Walter Bond. I mean, that was a big deal. Like, we were like starstruck, you know. And, uh, he actually helped us find our car. So ever since then, uh, I've had this attachment with him. He probably didn't even know, but uh, have watched his career and actually had the opportunity to watch him at the National Athletic Director Convention a number of years ago. And every time I get to hear him speak, it is uh, absolute joy. And I always learn something from him every time I hear him speak. So thank you for being with us, Walter. And I just thought I'd share that little tidbit uh, uh, you know, just what type of person you are, always trying to help people, uh, no matter how, how big or small the problem. Well, thanks, Scott. I, I would have thought the mean streets of Worthington would have been <laughs> yeah. a little bit better. I'm glad I could step in and, and pitch it for you. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, Walters, we get started today. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey and uh, how you got to where you are today? You know, incredible story. You know, I'm a Chicago kid. Uh, grew up in the city of Chicago. Um, youngest in my family. Uh, came from a very athletic family. My uncle played Major League Baseball. Uh, played for the Twins, Cleveland Indians, Houston Astros. He was my dad's brother. And ironically, he died of leukemia when he was playing for the Minnesota Twins when he was only 29. He died actually during the season. And that was in 1967. I was the next male born in the family in 69. So my dad named me after his brother. So I grew up in a very athletic family. Uh, my big sister played college ball at USC, uh, won two national championships, playing with a girl named Cheryl Miller. Uh, my dad's in the Hall of Fame at his college, my uncle. And I'm the youngest, you know, and in, in a lot of families, you know, your youngest tends to be your best athlete. I don't know why. Um, I remember going to games when I was young enough to even remember, you know, just always around baseball fields, basketball courts. But my parents were teachers. My dad was a high school principal. My mom was a teacher. So I grew up in that home where just school and athletics was all we did. <laughs> nothing, you know, there was nothing else to do but school and athletics. And so I got a chance to get a scholarship from the University of Minnesota. Uh, got recruited, you know, pretty heavily around the country. Got recruited by Michigan and Wisconsin and um, Arizona State, UCLA. Uh, chose Minnesota, and here's why. Um, being the youngest, my dad had gone through the recruiting process himself. He'd seen my uncle and my sister, and he said something to me that really stuck. My dad was a thinker, very, uh, very cerebral. And he was like, son, this is not a four-year decision. Mm-hmm. Mm. This is a 40-year decision. Yeah. Mm. You choose a school 
that's going to bless you 40 years from now. And when you're 17 years old, hearing something like that, it just it just blew my mind in terms of how I even looked at recruiting. And so that's the kind of family I came from. So, you know, when I chose the University of Minnesota, in large part, it was because of the Twin Cities and all of the business opportunities outside of sports. And for any athlete, you know, I'm a, you know, the NBA is a client. So I do a lot of work with the NBA rookies. They have a program called the NBA Top 100 where they bring in the top 100 high school kids and they typically use me to be the MC of the whole week. And I tell high school kids, I don't care how good you are. Like I met Greg Oden and OJ Mayo and Michael Beasley. And I met all these NBA guys when they were 16 and, and sophomores in high school. And I tried as much as I could to influence them. And hey guys, this is, you know, a lot of you guys are gonna play in the NBA, but I'm 51. I mean, I still needed education. I still needed to have something else that I'm passionate about after basketball. So that's the family I grew up in. And I had some journeys to get to the NBA, but, you know, just very thankful to come from a family where my dad was a high school principal. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. My sister is now an assistant associate superintendent of a Compton schools in LA. My brother is a teacher. My uncle was an associate superintendent. My sister-in-law is a teacher. So that's the kind of family I come from. It's all about <laughs> athletics and education. You are in the family business. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, obviously, your big focus, Walter, is on, on leadership and leadership development. So um, let's jump into just talking about some of that stuff with you. What do you see as um, when you're talking with folks to think about building leadership capacity in an organization or in a group you're speaking to, what do you see as the most important skills to develop as a leader? You know, first of all, the coach has got to care, you know, and and that and might sound trivial, but it's not, you know, again, my dad was a high school principal. His number one frustration was teacher apathy. You know, he just could not understand how and why these teachers didn't care. And so to me, using the baseball analogy, to get a coach that's going to really have an impact, just to give the first base is like, you got to care. I mean, you got to care about the kids, not about winning and losing. You know, I think too many high school coaches are focused on winning and losing. Look, if LeBron walks through the door, we're going to know it. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? If the next, you know, Aaron Judge walks through the door or, or whomever, Kirk, Kirk, um, of, of whoever, you know, if, if, if the next great thing walks through the door, we're going to know it. Because one thing about sports, if you're gifted to play at a high level, Kirk Warner, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. I was give a little eye mm-hmm. love. Um, when you see a future Division One athlete, let's not even talk pros. You guys have coached before. When you see a future Division One athlete, it's just, you know it. <laughs> you know, it, it's not, yeah. it's not, it doesn't sneak up on you. You know it from almost day one that this kid or this girl got a shot. They just got a gift. Now we got to nurture it. We got to build it. A lot of things got to fall into place. But for the most part, very few Division One athletes sneak up on you. Now you can make an argument <laughs> Division Two, Division Three, but you know. So, so number one thing for a high school coach um, to understand and athletic director, in my opinion. It's to build an environment where these kids can reach their potential as people. 
you know, there's a coach named Jerry Keel who's a gopher football coach. And I heard him at a luncheon and he made a statement that changed my life. And one of the fans said, Jerry, just took over the gopher program. You know, how many games are we going to win? And this is what he said, guys. This is just the old school coach. He says, I learned a long time ago not to predict victories. But what I believe, if I can turn these boys into men, mm-hmm. winning football games will be easy. So to me, a smart coach is really about player development as a person. Because to be successful, it's beyond your fastball. You know, it's beyond your jump shot. You got to really have an internal value system that positions you to be able to take advantage of this athletic ability. Because we've seen tons of athletes who are talented that blew it. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we, we've seen tons of athletes who never reached that potential. And it wasn't because of their physical talent. There was something going on off the court. They had no focus. They had no discipline. They had no, no drive. And so my, my, my foundational message for any athletic director to communicate to their coaches is like, look, we're trying to create great people. Because if we, if we create great people, they're going to reach their potential as athletes. And I think too much focus is on developing this athlete instead of developing the person. I follow up with that too. I think that's really important now is we think, you know, we start back to a fall season tomorrow in Iowa. And, you know, um, there's some obviously that aren't. Minnesota, you know, one, Minnesota schools are putting off football and volleyball till the spring. Um, And I think it kind of goes with that. I think that we need to make sure that our kids, when they're coming back, we just aren't worried about this. This is not the same normal. And so just kind of, we've got to really be in tune with where they're at as people emotionally right now, because they're still going to be on edge a little bit. And we haven't been together in some of these settings for five months. Yeah. And now we're going back into interacting with each other. And it just can't be, and I've talked to my coaches about that. It just can't be X and O. We got to really make sure people are, um, we, we, again, caring about the whole person. Yeah. You know, I, I got a buddy of mine, you guys remember, uh, named Willie Burton. Yeah. Uh, Willie yeah. Burton is my college teammate with the Gophers yeah. from Detroit. Lottery pick in the NBA. You know, one game he had 53 points. Mm-hmm. Um but he didn't. He did not reach his potential in basketball because he had some emotional things that didn't get dealt with. And now he's on a mission to go around and really talk to coaches and athletic directors. You guys need to talk to him. Uh, he's off. He doesn't do any drugs, no alcohol. And when he looks back on his life growing up, he talked about the the trauma that he saw growing up. Like before the age of twelve, he saw like three people murdered. Mm-hmm. And he remembered being a little kid, like hiding under the table. Like that, that was his hiding place. Like it was just so much drama in Detroit and violence that he would just hide under the table. And as he grew up, he began to hide in drugs. He, he began to hide in alcohol. And sometimes coaches see this behavior and they react the wrong way. You know, to me, you know, when you see some behavior out of a kid, that's not the time to kick him off the team. You know, that's the time to send them to detention. I mean, if you have a kid who's acting out, it's really a cry for help. And, you know, mm-hmm. Willie Burton was my teammate, loved that dude, and he was harmless. He was a great guy. I mean, he 
would not harm a fly, but he would sabotage himself. Mm-hmm. And we only knew that because he was our teammate. And now at, at, at 52 years old, I can't be more proud of him. He went and got help. I mean, he literally went and got help. And now he's living a great life. He's free. And now he's committed to really going back to helping high school coaches identify the next Willie Burton. And people saw him as a talent, but there were some emotional things that he needed to get help with that he feels like if he would have gotten help with his emotional trauma, and he figured this out all on his own, you know? And as he got older, he went to counseling and therapy, and he was trying to figure out why did he react so well or so poorly to adversity? And he realized, man, I, I saw so much violence and, and, and danger and, mm-hmm. and trauma as a kid. That's why I just got into this little emotional imbalance, right? And so imagine if someone would have grabbed him at 12, you know, it, it, it could have been able to just be a, a loving listener or a coach or a counselor. If we'd have gotten him help at 12 or 13, you know, he could have gone to be an NBA All-Star. I played with Carmelo and John Stockton. Willie Burton was the most talented player I've ever had on my team. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about two of the greatest players ever from a talent standpoint. Willie was more talented than Carl and John, but Willie has some emotional things going on. Mm-hmm. And he never really got the help as he was developing into this incredible player. So I say that to all of the coaches, like, look, dude, don't worry about the player. The player is there, okay? Yeah, we're going to work on the left hand. We're going to work on the routes. We're going to work on the digs. We're going to work on the fastball. But work <laughs> on the person. Yep. You know, and if you see some behavior that's off or unbecoming, Lean in. Yes. It's time to, you know, criticize the coach. And here's the truth. A lot of your coaches aren't really coaches. They're fruit inspectors. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between being a fruit inspector and a coach. A coach means I'm going to take this raw material and I'm going to help this kid develop and reach their potential. A fruit inspector is like, oh, this kid will never make it. He got a bad attitude. Throw him away. Oh, this kid never make it. He's too short. This kid never going to make it because his dad is a drunk. I mean, come on. Are you serious? We got college, high school coaches and athletic directors who are fruit inspectors. A coach's job is to take these raw materials of a 14-year-old kid. That's not time to judge them. Mm -hmm. It's time to nurture. That's time to develop. So when you go to NFL, the NFL draft, and when you go to the NBA draft, and those kids go up to that stage and they get emotional, and they start thanking people, Dude, that's real. Because yeah. they know, thank God for my AAU coach mm-hmm. who would pick me up because I knew I, I had no money. Yeah. My AAU coach would help me. I'd stay at his house. Thank you for my high school basketball coach. Thank you for my high school football coach. Thank you for my college coach because you cared enough. You were patient enough. You were loving enough. You were nurturing enough. You know, my parents were teachers. They weren't coaches. But you know, my dad cared about the kid. Yeah. He cared about the person. And if you help a person reach their potential, they might not be a Division I athlete, but they might be the next mayor of your town. Yeah. <laughs> they might be the next one to come back and, and leave pellet windows or, or bring Maytag back from the break. Who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Let, let, let's, let's deal and build the person up. And we, 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 we pay too much attention to performance and winning and losing than really building character into our kids. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Hmm. 
so a follow-up, if I can, as far as leadership, the best leader you've uh, that has influenced you and why? Tom, you're about to get me emotional. My father. Yeah. You know, my father was my high school principal. And people that don't know my story, I went to two high schools, uh, and I'm the youngest. Uh, my first high school was Whitney Young in Chicago. And that was a top academic school. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where Michelle Obama went. Um, Jesse Jackson kids went there. These were literally the smartest kids in Chicago. Now, eventually, they became a basketball school, yeah. and they produced Quentin Richardson. They could pr- produce Jamel Okafor. And we also had a kid named Russell Maryland that went there. They ended up being the number one pick in the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. But when I was there, they could care less about sports. It was all academics. And so I didn't get accepted. My brother and sister went there and they excelled. And so my dad was a high school principal and he wrote a letter and got me in. So the fact that I didn't get accepted academically from day one, I was a little defeated because I really believe these kids were smarter than me. Now, the crazy thing is I always competed on the basketball court, the baseball diamond, the football field. But academically, I wasn't ready to compete and I failed. I ended up having like a 2.1, 2.2. And my dad was in, like, basically like, son, we got to transfer you. Like, you are not getting it done. So it wasn't like I was just just a total just slough off. These were the smartest kids in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And these mm-hmm. kids were competing in the classroom. Yeah. And I ended up transferring to my dad's high school in the hood. And it was totally different. Very low income. I was the only kid who paid for lunch. Now, mm. I'm serious. I was the only kid who actually paid for lunch. Every other student was on free lunch. So it was a great learning experience for me to see kids come from real poverty. And I remember in the morning, I was so greedy. My dad would cook breakfast in the morning. Every morning we had the same thing, scrambled eggs, bacon, and toast. My dad would cook it, I would eat, and then we would drive to school. But since we were in a low-income area, they would serve breakfast. My greedy self would go into the lunchroom. <laughs> eat a second breakfast and back then I, I wasn't mostly intelligent enough that when I got into the lunchroom some of the kids would ask me for my donut and milk and I would always like man like no this is mine you eat yours but man now that I understand what was really going on some of these kids were collecting donuts because they wanted to give it to their little sister mm-hmm. that might be lunch that might be dinner when I think about it I feel horrible because my dad provided breakfast every morning, but I was not in tune with what was really going on. I mean, for some of these kids, they didn't even know where they were going to sleep that night. They didn't know if the lights were going to be on. I mean, it was that low income. And so for me to be around those kind of kids who were just as smart, just as bright. And so sometimes, you know, when you're an educator and the kid is blown off school, it's so easy to just dismiss the kid. But I was around kids, and I get it. They're like, dude, you talk about a test next week. I need to eat tonight. Like, I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. So I had to really, at 13, 14, 15, these kids were worried about their own personal survival. Mm-hmm. The hell with a test. <laughs> you want me to worry about a grade? Like, dude, my sister and I have not eaten in two days. And I saw it up close, and I was like, man, this is like a TV show. This is like a movie. And so, you know, my dad understood it, and he was built for it. 
And I'm telling you, man, it was such a great experience for me because at my first high school, the only difference, most of these kids had support. That was really the only difference. Now, there were some brilliant kids, but for the most part, the only difference was support. And here I am with a 2.1, great family, great parents. When I got to my dad's high school, I was just kind of like, dude, what is my... And he would tell me, your value system is screwed up. All you care about is sports. You're just as smart as my other kids. And at his school, I really saw life. And I saw the great opportunity that I really did not take advantage of. And in those two years, going to my dad's low-income high school in the hood, man, I grew so much as a person. And I really got a grasp of being thankful and really taking advantage of opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. So we're going to take a couple trips down memory lane now. And uh, can you tell us, Walter, your favorite NBA memory? You know, two. You know, my my first memory was scoring against Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, was like, That's it. Mic, mic drop, man. That's all you have to say right there. I was, you know, if you Google it, you can see it online. But I'm, a, I'm a Chicago kid. And Michael Jordan was the guy of my era. So when I was in high school, Michael Jordan was who you watched. And my dad was a basketball player. And my sister played ball. I told you guys earlier. My dad loved Oscar Robinson. Yeah. You know, he was like, son, Oscar Robinson averaged a triple-double. Me and my brother like, dad, you crazy. Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> so I had that kind of respect for him. And so when you make it to the NBA, you know, clearly you respect your competition, but you have to have a hell of a lot of confidence yourself. And people ask me all the time, like, oh my God, you played in the NBA, you played against Michael Jordan, what was it like? I think Michael Jordan's the greatest player ever. LeBron is making a serious argument. But you know what it was like? I tried to kick his butt. What do you mean? What it <laughs> Some people can't really grab having the level of confidence to be able to compete against a Michael Jordan, but to play in the NBA, I mean, your confidence level is either narcissist level or borderline. You got to mm-hmm. really believe you're the best in the world. And so yeah. when people ask me that question, they can't even grab the ability to have that kind of confidence to be able to play at that level. And typically that is the difference. And so if you think about even a division one athlete, a lot of times what happens in college, you lose your confidence. You know, you were a high school star, you were the prima donna, you know, and then you get on that college campus in Iowa, Iowa State, wherever, and everybody there was All-State. You know, so being an All-State athlete with just minimum requirement and this new pecking order is established at the college level. And so a lot of the high school kids just kind of acquiesce. And it's not always a talent issue. It's really an emotional approach. And so I didn't start in college. I came off the bench. And so my confidence is on life support. Mm-hmm. You know, to be a reserve in college would keep an NBA-level confidence. And so mm-hmm. when I talk about who's my favorite person, who's my dad, because he kept my confidence up. You know, when you, you look at Tiger Woods, guys, here's the truth. Tiger Woods fell apart when his dad died. Let's, let's go there, right? Mm-hmm. People want to talk about his knee. They want to talk about his back. Here's the truth. When Tiger Woods lost his dad, Tiger Woods not been the same because he lost his support system. Who has Tiger Woods talked to? <laughs> like, if he had a bad day, if he's off, is he having some uh, emotional problem? Or dad, I think I'm suffering from depression. You know? Me and the wife are having issues. 
Who the hell does he talk to? That's not going to turn it into a tell-all book or turn it into some, some kind of tabloid or some movie. Who does Michael Jordan talk to? You know, he lost his dad. And next thing we know, he's playing baseball. I knew right away, man, I knew that there was a connection between baseball and Michael Jordan's dad. And when I watched Last Dance a couple of weeks ago, he talked about it. He's like, man, my dad loved baseball. He always told me I should have been a baseball player. Now, mind you, I come from a baseball family. I knew as soon as he, at the height of his career, lost his dad and goes and played baseball, he's grieving. He is grieving. And a guy like Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, how do you grieve? You don't have a lot of people around you that genuinely care about you. Everybody's on payroll. <laughs> Everybody trying to take a selfie. You know, who can Michael yeah. talk to? Who can Tiger Woods talk to? And get the honest to God truth, com- confrontation. It, they don't have those kind of people in their environment. So to your point, really having a support system, having people around you that support you is so important so that you can reach your potential. So scoring against Michael Jordan, Todd, to answer your question, was a childhood fantasy. But I'm going to tell you something else happened for me. Uh, My dad always taught me to pay attention. My dad was a quiet guy, very intelligent, always paying attention and very observant. He would always say, pay attention. Now, to this day, I'm an award-winning Hall of Fame motivational speaker because my daddy taught me to pay attention. I'm trying out for the Utah Jazz. We're in training camp, and we don't scrimmage. My agent is calling me, how's it going? I was like, dude, I have no clue. What do you mean? We don't scrimmage. Like, all we do are drills. Like, this is, I've never seen this before in my life. My wife, I got three kids at home. How's it going? Like, man, I have no clue. How's it going? My dad is like, y'all don't scrimmage? That's crazy. You, you guys have been around sports. We never scrimmaged. All we did were drills. So I go to Jerry Sloan, and I'm literally on the verge of an anxiety attack. Because my NBA career is hanging in the balance. And Jerry is a man's man, though. He just passed away two two months ago. And I went out to Utah to honor him. And I said, Jerry, I'm trying to make your team. But since we don't scrimmage, I feel like I can't show you what I can do. You want to talk about execution? Utah was the best executing team I've ever played on. Wasn't even close. I said, Jerry, I feel like I can't show you what I can do. That's what he said, guys. He says, Walter, I already know what you can do. But if you want to make my team, I suggest you listen, follow directions, and execute. In other words, you need to learn how to play the Utah Jazz way. So you look at a team like the New England Patriots, they have the Patriot way. Mm-hmm. You go down to Nick Saban in Alabama, they got the Alabama way, Dabo Sweeney, the Dabo Sweeney way. So to me, if I'm a coach in high school, what is your way? If I'm an athletic director, what is your way? I made the Utah Jazz because Jerry Sloan knew that I had been listening, following directions, and executing. And this is all he did, final preseason game. He puts me in the game with five minutes to go with the starters. Now, the way the NBA works, at least back then, your final preseason game is played like a regular season game because guys are starting to extend minutes. You're trying to get your lungs and, and you know, because the NBA is a sprint. Yeah. And so I was sitting on the bench almost the whole game. 
And he put me at the, in the game at the end with about five minutes to go. And all the starters are in, the Indiana Pacers starters are in. And I end up guarding Reggie Miller. And the way the Utah Jazz offense worked, it was very orchestrated. It was very precise. If there was four options, you got to the fourth option. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about under, out of bounds underneath, sideline out of bounds. It was none of this one pass and one-on-one. And I stayed in the offense. I got to the spot where I was supposed to be. And I'll never forget, I hit a three in the corner. And Jerry Sloan just looked at me like, okay. All right. <laughs> like, I, I trust you. Yeah. Like, it wasn't about you playing basketball. Can you play the Utah Jazz way? And I learned that. And it's helped me in my corporate career because great leaders have a way. You know, that's why Chick-fil-A is so successful. They have a way. McDonald's has a way. You know, so I don't care if it's business or if it's in sports. Successful people have a way. They got a system, and you plug players into your system, they should be able to operate well within your system. Tom Brady is a six-round pick. Let's be honest. You know, no disrespect to Tom Brady, but if you notice, every time he gets hurt, the backup looks good too. And so right now, I expect Cam Newton to be an MVP candidate if he buys into the way. <laughs> you guys remember Matt Castle? You guys remember Matt Castle? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I remember. Right towards ACL, Matt Castle filled in, and yep. he went 11 and 3. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bill Belichick has a way. Yeah. Yep. Can I, can I yeah. ask you a follow up question on that, though? Yes. And it's going to come off of a, an article I just read here today. Um, if you've been following all with what's been going on at the University of Iowa football, with recent yes. cultural relations and such. And, and Rick Coleman, uh, reporter up with KWW, a longtime reporter up there, talked about. Um, just kind of came out, not came out, but, but asked a question of Coach Ference, um, asked him to think about things a different way. And it was basically along, basically what, what Rick Holmes asked about was players were being brought in and told, look, man, if you want to make it in this program, you're going to do it the Iowa way. You're going to forget about your, your passion, forget about your old ways, and you're going to do it the Iowa way. Now, the way this coach is going about it, was putting some of their black players in a, in a tough spot. It, it, it didn't sit well with them the way it was being said. The, you're talking about that, and I totally agree. You've got to have a set way. How do you, what's your thoughts on having a balance between, yes, there's the Patriot way, yes, there's the Utah Jazz way, but, there, but you also have to value the individual and, and, uh, and, and find the right balance between those things so the individual understands your way but brings their personal perspective, their background, their uh, – their skill set into to enhance it. You, you know, I'm, I'm, there's got to be a balance there. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I mean, you know, cultures are different. I mean, let's think about it. If you go to Jamaica, you know, Jamaicans have an accent. If you go to London, London has an accent. If you go to Australia, I mean, culture is culture. So to me, the way is about me running the play. The, the, the way is how I play the game, like fitting mm-hmm. into how I will play football. It should have nothing to do with my tattoo. It should have nothing to do with how I wear my hair. It should have nothing mm-hmm. to do with how I walk or how I, how I dress. Mm-hmm. And the problem with culture, and as you know, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, you know, it was very similar. And I'm a city kid who grew up in Chicago. Everything in my world was black. My doctor was black. My pastor was black. My teachers were black. My first experience with white America was Minnesota. And you go from Chicago inner city right into Minnesota 
And when I first got there, people were like, huh? Huh? Like they couldn't understand me talking. I was like, you can understand me. Like, where do you, like, you can't, you mean to tell me you can't understand what I'm saying. But it was just so rigidly, I hate to use the term white, it was like no ability to be able to be open to a different culture. And unfortunately, when you look at the, really that middle America, Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, man, you're talking lily white. And you talk about a white environment that is sometimes immobile and inflexible. And anything other than how we do it is wrong. You know, that's where that's the problem. Like, if, yeah. if I do it another way, it's wrong. Instead of me understanding, like my son, to be honest, my son went to schools in Minnesota. And what I didn't understand was that as a gopher, I got treated differently. Because mm -hmm. people got to know Walter Bowman. Yeah. They, I, I wasn't a black guy. Like, oh, that's Walter Bond. And so they got to know me. But then I had kids. And my kids aren't Walter Bond. And my kids are in, y'all want to get something to blow your mind. The suburban high school my kids uh, in school they went to uh, was in our neighborhood. And they had kids from North Minneapolis bus in. The teachers and the lunchroom ladies assumed that my son was bust in. So they treated him like he was bust in. And it was just like, and I would go up to school for silly stuff. Like, well, he butted the lunchroom line. What are you talking about? He butted the line. And I, I said, I asked my son what happened. He said, well, my friends were in line to go eat lunch. And they said, Wesley, come on up here with us. So, but the lunchroom lady saw him as a bust in kid from North Minneapolis. And everything he did, it was like a microphone and the truth is, we belong to a country club right in the same area. But since he was a black kid, they assumed he was bust in. Hell, all the kids took a school bus. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked to the principal. I was like, sir, all the kids are bust in. And even the principal used the language, are bust in kids. So even the principal segregated with his language. I was mm -hmm. like, sir, all the kids are bust in. And so my son got caught in this dilemma. Well, yeah, he's a black kid, but he lives in the area. Yeah. So most of his friends were the white kids, but the teachers and the administrators assumed that he was a kid bust in from the city. And so people take shortcuts. And that's what cops do. They, they, guys, I can tell you so many stories of me being pulled up. And so white America is looking around like, oh man, stuff is going crazy. I'm like, what do you mean going crazy? We've been telling you this for years. You didn't believe it. The average white guy is like, you must have done something. The cops don't pull me over. Of course they don't. You're white. <laughs> of course, that's the point. And so white America looks at it through their lens, and they say, well, you must have done something. Guys, I lived in Plymouth, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Right? Driving home. What the heck? What are you doing around here? Rude, nasty, showing my ID, and dis disrespectful. Okay? And I'm a man. So you disrespect me a couple of times, I'm going to punch you in your throat at some point. I want to. And so they talk to you in your kind of way because a lot of times, a lot of the suburban cops, they saw themselves protecting the suburbs and the elements coming in. And I'm like, dude, I show my ID. They see my address. No apology. No explanation. I got pulled over one time, cuffed, thrown in the car for an air freshener. And the cop 
Text my ID, throws me in the car, and I'm like, look, dude, what I do? No answer. Like, dude, what did I do? And finally, he goes, obstruction. So we talk about obstruction. I had an air freshener hanging out my my um rearview mirror. I'm in the back of the car, cuffed up, and I'm six five. I'm freaking struggling in the back of this car. And every time you move with handcuffs, they get tighter. And I watched cars go by. About every third car had a air freshener. Baby shoes, um, graduation tassels. I'm like, dude, you didn't pull me up for obstruction. It's an excuse. You pulled me up because I was black, no other reason. And this is my neighborhood. And people driving by looking like, oh, what do you do? Down here in Florida, dude, I live in, in, in Palm Beach County, which is Trump country. I joined a boating club and they have the Coast Guard. Yep. I went out six times and I got pulled over three times by the yep. Coast Guard. And they call them random searches. And the third time I lost, I'm with my wife and kids. They search your boat, they seize your boat. It's like a 45 minute process, screws the whole day up. When you get on the boat, you just wanna cruise and have a good time, screw the whole day up, man. I don't even want a boat anymore. And they call them random searches. The third time, oh, am I right? I said, look, dude, I've been on this six times and y'all pulled me over three times. It's like 200 boats on this inner coast. And you just happen to pull me over almost every other time. Well, it's random. I was like, look, dude, I've been out here six times. You pulled me over three times. I've been out here six times. You pulled me over three times. And the cop went, hey, sir, settle down. You can't shut me up. I looked at him just like that. Man, you can't shut me up. Screw you. I've been out here six times, and y'all pulled me over three times. Because I knew the whole process was 45 minutes because I'd done it. I'm like a veteran now. I said it the whole 45 minutes. I've been out here six times, and you pulled me over three times. White America. Trust me, the only difference is there's cameras. That's the only difference. The only difference is this stuff is getting filmed on cameras. Now, all cops bad? No, of course not. But for you to walk around here naively, right, and you have evidence, and people have been telling you since the 60s of police brutality. This isn't new. Since the 60s, we've been talking about police brutality. It's 2020. And about 60% of America is finally like, uh, I get it. There's still 40% of America still like, uh, nah. <laughs> so bottom line is, man, you know, it is what it is. And I've had superintendents call me. I've had high school principals call me and want me to come to do programs for the teachers and coaches in Wisconsin, in Iowa, and Minnesota. <laughs> And they would say, hey, man, I don't know how to say this, but we're getting some diversity for the first time. And our teachers don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Can you come in and teach our teachers what? What, what, what do you mean teaching what to do? What, 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 we got to have a freaking symposium to teach a fourth grade teacher who's been teaching for 20 years mm-hmm. what to do. Do what you've been doing. <laughs> teach like you've been teaching mm-hmm. love like you've been loving nurture like you've been nurturing mm-hmm. these aren't aliens <laughs> you have some teachers I hate to say it are so white have never been exposed to any diversity literally look at a Samaritan kid or look at a black kid or a Mexican kid and literally act like it is an alien 
man, this kid is no different than your other kids in your class. Some of them are smart, some of them are not. <laughs> some of them are gonna work hard, some of, it's no difference. Yeah. But to think there's a difference is a systematic problem yeah. that we gotta really deal with, especially at Midway. Yeah. Right there in the middle, both coasts, my, you know, diversity's been there. Man, right there, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nebraska, come on, man. <laughs> We're like 30 years behind the rest of the country. I hate to say it, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, appreciate your thoughts there because you, you said that and it just spurred my, my thoughts on that article. And, and I think you're hitting that right on where it isn't. It's that there's a way of, of doing things in an excellent way and, and you get you bring everybody on board to do that. It has nothing to do with strip having to strip everybody of uh, of their culture and values to, to do it that way. It's how you build that into the way you do things. So thanks so much for sharing yeah. that. Um, a little more memory lanes. You talked about Minnesota. You talked about going there. What what would you, going back to college in your college days, what's your favorite Minnesota memory playing in Minnesota? You know, honestly, you know, this was a great message for your coaches, um, you know, really being a part of a program that got turned around. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a part of uh, Coach Tom Haskins' first recruiting class, and he took over the program because there was a rape scandal in Madison in like 1986. And so he inherited some players, and basically myself, Kevin Lynch, a guy named Marlon Maxey and Eric Wilson mm-hmm. was his first recruiting class. Mm-hmm. And so he would come to practice, and our practices were hard. They were very demanding. They were structured. And he had incredible player development. And he pushed us, man. And he would always say, one day we're going to be a top 25 program. Now, meanwhile, we had one of the longest Big Ten losing streaks. Like, we lost, like, prior to me coming there, I think we lost, like, 20 to 30 Big Ten games in a row. And so we would lose by 20 to Iowa, whoever. And he would say, one day we're going to be a top 20 program. He kept pushing us, kept driving us. And basically, as I said earlier, he was installing the way. I mean, he was literally taking this lump of coal and building a program. And the University of Illinois came in number one in the country. Um, they had the flying Illini. And it came into Minneapolis, number one in the country. And we beat them by like 15 points. In that moment, guys, we knew that, man, Coach, Coach knows he's, what he's talking about. <laughs> he was actually building, and we didn't know it, right? We just didn't – we didn't understand culture. We didn't, we didn't understand how important it was to live. All we knew, we were working hard and losing. That's all we knew. We were working hard and losing. We were getting better. We were working hard and losing. And when Illinois came in, it clicked. And for every coach, there's that moment, right? There's that yeah. moment where your program turns the corner. And after we beat Illinois, I mean, we went on to the Sweet 16 that same year. The next year we went to the Elite Eight. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years later, Coach Hassan took the team for the Final Four. And mm-hmm. on my team, we had seven guys playing in the NBA. So probably my fondest mem- memory was being a part of a program that developed right before my eyes. And so yeah. now when I work with my cor- corporate clients, I don't care what state you're in because I know we can get better. But yeah. we got to figure out the way. If you, don't, if you don't have a way, you're not going to get better. But a good coach has a system. They have a way. And they install their way every single day. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. Hey, Walter. It's Scott here again. Um, I love your, your mindset, shark mindset. I love the theory. I love the concept. But who has been your shark? Who have you learned your shark mentality from? 
and how has that impacted your life? And I know you talked a little bit about your dad and maybe that was it, but if, if there was somebody else or what, what kind of gave you that shark mindset and how has that impacted your life? And then in turn, how have you impacted other people's lives with that same mindset? You know, ironically, um, the shark mindset is really based off of the book I wrote um, titled Swim. And, you know, this book has become a bestseller because it's all about mentorship. And to me, mentorship is a subset of leadership. But mentorship has almost been eliminated out of leadership. And so one day I'm fishing and I caught this ugly fish and I bring it in. And the captain of the boat says, hey, man, that's a sucker fish. And I'm about to throw it back. He said, no, watch this. He takes a sucker fish and he sticks it on the top of the boat and this fish defy gravity. And the fish, um, come to find out, connects to sharks. And the way they survive in the ocean, when the sharks come by, they use the suction on the top of their head to connect to the shark. So if you ever see a great white shark, they'll have anywhere from 10 sometimes 30 sucker fish connected to it. And so when the captain taught me about the sucker fish, I went home and did research about the symbiotic relationship. So the shark mindset was really burned out of that fishing trip when I caught the mm -hmm. sucker fish. And the real story for me, I told you guys, I flunked out of my first high school. Mm -hmm. But my dad was my high school principal. So he was a shark, I was a sucker fish. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he took me places I couldn't take myself. Yeah. And when I got to college, you know, I, I was recruited, you know, pretty highly. I wasn't like a can go anywhere you want to go kind of kid, but I was I was recruited heavily. Um, but I had potential, mm -hmm. right? The college coach, you know, he helped me reach my potential, right? And so Coach Haskins was my second shark. When I get to the NBA, Jerry Sloan was my third shark. He taught me the importance of execution, you know, kind of culture, running the program understanding your role, you know, Utah was very role specific and everybody had a different role. And as long as you played your role, you were fine. And then I get into the speaking business and I found mentors and coaches in the speaking business. So to your point, Scott, yeah. the shark and the sucker fish is really about finding a good coach and a good mentor. Yeah. And I think every coach should have a mentor, yeah. you know, and, and, and I hope that every coach is coachable. You know, we talked about it earlier. I think it's very hypocritical for me to be a high school coach demanding my kids have a good attitude mm -hmm. and be coachable. But then when my AD calls me in the office, I don't want to listen to him or I'm defensive. <laughs> I got something to say to justify. You, you're a kid. Come on. Now, let's be honest. You, you expect your kids to have a certain level of respect. You mm -hmm. want your parents to have a certain level of respect. Mm -hmm. If I'm an AD... I should have a certain level of, of respect as it relates to my relationship with my AD. I don't have to agree with everything, right? but you don't have to disagree and be disrespectful. Right. You know, I love my daddy to death, but we disagree sometimes. We were talking because mm -hmm. at 6'5", he wanted me to be a big man. I'm like, dad, <laughs> dad, dad, dad. <laughs> you shoot too many jump shots. You know, you just focused up. I'm like, dad, dad, dad. Dude, in your era, 6'5 is a big man. Yeah. In my era, 6'5 is a guard. So we would have yeah. conversations, and eventually he was like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. and my, my older brother helped me because my dad played at a small college, and my brother was like, you know what, Dad? Honestly, Walter got to a higher level than you, 
So you can't just be talking to him like that. <laughs> so my older brother was a referee because some of my dad's perspective didn't jive with what I knew. Like, dude, six five is little. Yeah. Get, you ain't a big ass six five. So yeah. I respected my dad, but we didn't agree on every little thing. So I'm a coach, right. but he was my number one guy though. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you can be a coach and not necessarily agree with everything your AD yeah. says, but that doesn't give you the the authority to be disrespectful or yeah. or to be a little stinker when, when you want your kids to have a great attitude. Yeah. Hey, just to follow up with that, Walter, so you talked about the sucker fists, and, and I think that's important that all of us have mentors. Um, you know, just maybe share some thoughts on that sucker fish, you know, relationship with the shark and how we can, even as, you know, be sharks for some people, but other piece, other people were suckerfish on other people. So maybe just talk about that a little bit and your thoughts on that. And Absolutely. You know, to this day, I have mentors and I also mentor others. And I yeah. think in the perfect world, you know, we're all insulated that way. I mean, yeah. we all should have a mentor, yeah. you know, but we all should mentor others. And yeah. to me, you know, we're talking about athletic directors Mm-hmm. Every athletic director should have a mentor, mm-hmm. but every athletic director should mentor somebody else. Yeah. And to me, it allows the industry to be better because yeah. if I'm being mentored, that means I'm getting taught wisdom beyond my years. Yeah. But if I'm mentoring somebody else, it has a way of reinforcing what you should be doing. Yeah. And when I play in the NBA, I would yeah. work with high school kids. And people would say, why do you do that? Like, it's such a waste of time. Like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. Because when I worked with a high school kid, I was reinforcing myself. Yep. You know, when I would tell the high school kid, man, it's always square up and follow through. Yep. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I would yep. tell the high school kids, look, don't worry about stats. Make your team win. Yep. Don't worry about stats. Make your team yep. win. I was yep. reminding myself, don't worry about stats. Make yep. your team win. Right? And yep. so when I worked with high school kids, for me, it wasn't a waste of time. Yeah, I, I got tremendous value because yeah. I was reinforcing to myself what I should be doing. And yeah. I think if you're an athletic director, if you're being mentored and mentoring somebody else, you know, you're going to be confident, yeah. but to also humble at the same time. Yeah, I think that relationship is so important. And I know sometimes we lose sight of that, but it is so important to mentor others and then to be mentored. And I'm lucky. I've got both Aaron and Todd that, that, uh, are great mentors for me as well as many others. I'm sitting there laugh at me all the time, but they, I mean, I've learned, I learned stuff from these guys all the time. We are all sucker fish in the world of Scott Jarvis. No, 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 out, no, 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 no. Well, you know, but you know, to your point, you know, Scott, I, I think that it's fluid, right? So sometimes in your day, like one of our biggest clients is Jersey Mike Subs. Yep. Uh, I mean, Peter Cancro was the founder. I sit on the corporate board. And I'm with him a lot. And obviously within Jersey Mike's, he is the great white shark. I mean, he's mm-hmm. the founder. They have 2,300 locations. When he walks into a hotel or a conference, Peter, 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 can crow. But he took him to a lunch with the founder of Domino's. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, drawing a blank on his name. Got dogged. Anyway, the founder of Domino's. And we sat there and had, had lunch. And... Um, when we left the lunch, I said, Peter, you were the sucker fish in there. <laughs> so, 
Tom Monahan, Tom Monahan, yeah. founder of Home Depot, of uh, uh, Domino Pizza. Yeah. It was brilliant because I saw this guy be the shark everywhere he goes. Mm-hmm. But when he got in the presence of Tom Monahan, the founder of Domino's, he was very humble. Mm-hmm. It was all, almost like I'm talking to dad right now, like I'm mm-hmm. talking to my grandfather. Yeah. And when he left the meeting, I said, Peter, you were the sucker fish in that meeting. And he just looked and laughed and said, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, Tom's my mentor. Absolutely. Yeah. He just asked questions like, yeah. was, you know, how did you get this? Because Domino's got to 10,000 locations. Mm-hmm. You know, on, uh, um, Jersey Mike's had 2,300. So basically, dude, how did you get to 10,000? <laughs> You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and so he seriously was humble enough to just ask a guy who took Domino's to 10,000 locations. So with that being said, yeah. why, if he could have a mentor, yeah. you know, I met Mark Victor Hansen yeah. who wrote my book, Swim. Mark Victor Hansen is the author of Chicken Soup for Your Soul. And he heard yeah. me talk about the shark and the sucker fish and the shark mindset in front of 3,000 realtors. I got backstage. He hugged me. He's like, dude, you got to write the book. Mm-hmm. You gotta write the book, man. You got something there. Yep. Chicken soup for your soul? Are you kidding me? Well, the, the level of confidence and validation I felt, it was like Michael Jordan going to Kobe saying, dude, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because outside of the Bible, Bible, there's not many, many more books that have been sold other than the chicken soup series. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to this day, I said, man, you know, he heard me talk about the shark and the suckfish. That said, Mark Victor Hansen, have you ever met a 6'5"? 280 pound black sucker fish and he laughed yep. <laughs> <laughs> and i was like hey you know mark victor hansen will you be my mentor he mm-hmm. said sure yep. you know i, I yep. talked to him last week right so yep. i have a That's best-selling a great point. book why mentorship mm-hmm. <laughs> mentorship i didn't have to reinvent the wheel you know he he he, he, he guided me along the way and that's the power so bottom line there should not be an ad yep. out here on the island by themselves yeah. If you're on an island by yourself, that's your fault. Yeah. You guys have your annual conferences, your regional conferences, your state conferences, even virtually. Be humble enough to say, you know what, this guy has a high school with 5,000 kids. You know, my high school got 2,000 kids. Maybe this guy could be a good mentor for me. Or yeah. I just left a 2,000 student high school. I'm going to a much bigger high school. I need a mentor who's used to having a high school with 5,000 kids. Bottom line is, we all need to be mentored, right? We all need mm-hmm. to share. Yep. But sometimes it's okay being the sucker fish yep. because that's the only way we can reach our potential. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So, Walter, next question. You, you've been talking a lot about your book, uh, Swimming, and we're going to ask you to dive into that, but I want to maybe spin that a different direction because you talked about that that mentorship foundation of, of book Swim, but I want to couple your book with um, one of the one of the promo videos I was watching, just catching up on you today, it just, just struck me. Um, I, one of, one of our big words been trying to really work with our kids and the coaches on here as part, one of our seven core skills and that, that, that skill of just being relentless. Uh, and you were talking about the shark and the shark mindset and just that constant moving forward, always hunting, always pursuing that relentless nature. Um, I think sometimes in us in the AD world, uh, we lose that. We, we kind of feel like we reach this point of diminishing returns, man. I have been relentless to the, the nth degree and I feel like I'm spinning my wheels and getting nowhere. I'm reaching that point of, of, of diminishing returns. and I want to just back away and quit. What drives you forward in this mentality of this, this shark mindset or this, this swim mindset to, 
to, to get through those, those tough times when you just want to be like, man, I can't, I can't work harder. I can't do more. Well, you know, first of all, Aaron, great question. Um, because there is a, there's a, there's a point where you pass hard work and get into hysteria. Are you getting to depression? <laughs> you know, and seriously, like addiction or um, spiraling out of control. I actually think the coronavirus is a blessing because it's given us all a chance to reset. It's given mm-hmm. us all a chance to kind of reconnect with our priorities and reconnect with our body system. But with that mm-hmm. being said, again, my dad's biggest concern was apathy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm guessing that working too hard is not your common issue <laughs> in education. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would think that that is not a prevailing issue. Yeah. It's out there because you can burn it. I would think that a lot of ADs aren't working hard enough on the right things, right? Mm-hmm. So being an athlete, let's bring it all the way home. We all had our off season. Mm-hmm. And in your off season, that's where you worked on your left hand. <laughs> right? That's where you get bigger, stronger, and faster. So for me, Aaron, it's not just about working hard. It's really about getting exponentially better. And the way education works, you kind of get an off-season built in. And so what I would encourage every athletic director to do, to be harder on yourself than you are your coaches. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. To be harder on you than you are on your coaches. And if that is the mindset, you start there. And basically the relationship you have with your coaches is like, hey, how can I support you better? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the communication is the biggest gap that all my corporate clients have. Whenever I, I get a corporate client and they're struggling, it's always communication. Yeah. And I, I think that athletic directors, especially men, here's why. The average woman speaks 25,000 words a day. The average man speaks about 5,000 words a day. So most men struggle with communication. You don't believe me? Get your kids in the car. You ask your son, how's school? Good. How's you doing your test? Fine. You hungry? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you tired? Yeah. A little bit. You get your daughter in the car. I got two daughters and a son. You get your daughter's like, how's school? Oh my God, Emily spit on me. She pulled my hair. She's so in the mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> 30 minutes Almost. later, you got a play-by-play of not even the whole day, just the bus ride home. Right. right. So women tend to be much more expressive, right? I must have got more of my mom's jeans. Well, <laughs> that, I'm a talker, too. I'm a talker, too. My wife probably like, look, dude, you talk more than I do. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's important for athletic directors to understand that communication is everything. Because we all have our own value system. We all have our own history. Because you can say something out of your mouth to me, Aaron, or Scott, or Todd. And because of my background, I think something totally different. I'm Mm -hmm. from Chicago, okay? You guys are from the Midwest, Worthington, Iowa. Because of our background, we think totally different. And I'll give give you an example. You know, Drew Brees, you know, he talked about patriotism. And how proud he was of his grandfather. Now, that hits me different. Because now I got to think about my grandfather. Who couldn't be a man. Think about that. Mm -hmm. You stay alive as a black man. 
in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, you had to acquiesce your manhood. You couldn't be 100% macho man and stay alive. So you talk about patriotism. Well, let me talk about my father who used colored restrooms. I don't even need to go to my grandfather, right? So I get your father, your grandfather, but if you ask me about patriotism, it's going to hit me differently. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? So yeah. when we speak to somebody, we just can't speak flippantly and assume they understand. Mm-hmm. We need to be really good communicators. We need to completely articulate what we're thinking and what we're coming from to a point we let them articulate it back to me. Because what happens? Oh, I thought you meant this. Well, when you said that, I thought you meant this. Well, you told me, and that's not what I meant, right? So just sometimes for men, especially, I'm going to pick on men, we got to overdo the communication because we don't talk nearly as much as women do. That's why women love to talk to their mom, they talk to their sister, they talk to their best friend. They need that communication because that's how their world is formed. Men, we go into our little cave by ourselves and we got all these thoughts in our head, but sometimes we don't always communicate effectively to the people that we're thinking about, right? So mm-hmm. my dad was a quiet guy. He was a quiet guy, but when he spoke, he really was a good communicator. Mm-hmm. And he was very accountable. And he would almost always start with my mother. I mean, that's how he almost began every conversation. He took ownership and it totally diffused you. You know, it totally, mm-hmm. like, here it is. This dude is taking full responsibility of me. You know, I flunked out of my first high school. He already told me. He said, you know what? Your brother and sister going to college. Now I can focus on you. He almost implied that my failing in school was partly his fault. You know, now I can focus on you. And I'm thinking like, dude, I flunked out of school. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the one that blew off the test. But what did that do for me emotionally? It wasn't like, you were screwed up. You needed to. No, it was like, all right, man. You're just as smart as my other kids. Mm -hmm. They're going to college. Maybe I didn't give you enough attention. Maybe I didn't demand enough from you. I mean, when he took that accountability, instantly, dude, I was like, accountable. Instantly. I was like, dude. In my mind, I was like, "Dad, I'm screwing up. <laughs> how, how you going to take responsibility for my screw up? So imagine mm-hmm. if an athletic director had that mentality mm-hmm. when that football team goes 1-11 and you go in there and talk to that coach, not because they just 1-11, because you didn't like the attitude on the field. You come and say, you know, that might be my fault. Maybe, may, maybe I put too much pressure on you. Maybe I put too much pressure on the kids. You understand what I'm saying? So to me, mm-hmm. from a leadership standpoint, you always got to have that communication ability to where if you want to have a culture of accountability, you got to go first. And that is the beauty of leadership, that when you own stuff, I'm telling you, you're building a culture of ownership. Because if that coach is worth their salt or if that athletic director is worth their salt, the moment you start owning a 1-11 season, I can't let you own that by yourself. <laughs> I was a coach. Well, maybe I worked the kids too hard, and maybe I didn't work them hard enough, and maybe, you know, I, 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 I didn't have the right kids on the team. Maybe I got to recruit better. I didn't ask my kid to come. I got to own some of this. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of culture building in corporate America, and what I try and change 
train all my leaders to do is like change is good, but you go first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, want, you want to change the culture of your school and your athletic department? <laughs> You go first. You go yeah. first. Yep. That's good stuff. That's good. Yeah. Walter, we, uh, we're down to our final two questions, and our listeners know what's coming because every guest we ask these questions. They're, they're reflective, um, but we have learned so much about leadership and about our guests just by these two questions. The first one is, if you could give advice to a young Walter Bond, just starting out on his journey, what would you tell him? Mm. What would you possibly do differently? Mm. Man, that's a great question, Todd. Honestly, in college, I was a little selfish. Um, in college, I was a little bit of a, um, I probably was a tough kid to coach from this lens. If you didn't do it like my daddy, you didn't know what you were doing. Mm. <laughs> right? And one of the disadvantages of having a, a father that you hold in such high esteem, I measured every coach I had against how my father operated. And now at 51, mm -hmm. I realize there's a bunch of different ways to lead, and they all can be effective. So mm -hmm. probably my college basketball coach and I, Coach Haskins, we're great now. But we had moments. We had some moments. <laughs> and a lot of it had to do, and I think he grew too. I think he really grew too because I didn't need a father figure. Mm -hmm. You know, most of my teammates needed a father figure. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I just needed a coach. And so I was different for him. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you, you understand what I'm saying? And yeah. I think sometimes that might be what happened with Kirk Cousins or Kirk mm -hmm. Harris in Iowa. Like, all these kids don't need no daddy. You know, all these kids aren't looking for you to be dead. They yeah. don't want to be well coach. Yeah. They got the value system. They come from a great family. I don't yeah. need to teach me how I need to respond to every situation. I came here to go to class. I think that's a family situation. Honestly, kids going to school and graduating, that's a family culture thing. Now, yeah. I'm glad the coaches take responsibility for it. But honestly, that culture is built into you at home, in my opinion, to yeah. take academics seriously. My parents were all about academics you know, focus and commitment. Um, but 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 to to really think about what I would have done different, I would have been less selfish. Mm -hmm. Right. When you have that dream of playing pro sports, man, when you walk on a college campus, you're selfish as hell. <laughs> you know you you, you <laughs> honestly you, you winning be nice, but I'm gonna go to the NBA. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I was very selfish. Um and part of what 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 made it even worse is I didn't start in college. And so I felt my dream, you know, almost being compromised. And I felt mm -hmm. my coach was was the, the the enemy. You know what I mean? Like, dude, I'm about to play in the NBA. You're screwing this up. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? And that's mm -hmm. how, you know, but the funny thing, once I made it to the NBA, which is hilarious, I always wanted to start in college. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. I get to the NBA, and guess what happened? My rookie year, I started. Guys, I would be so tired. <laughs> 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 I get to the NBA stadium, and I would be exhausted. And I realized that, you know what? I'm not built to be an NBA starter. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, 
that's just not who I am. I don't have the stamina to play LeBron minutes. Dude, they're freaks. Yeah. To be able to do that 82 times and every mm-hmm. night the stadium is packed to see you, those guys are not just talented basketball players. They are physical freaks that have the stamina to mm-hmm. be able to do that four day, four games and five nights. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I'm so exhausted. My coach was right. I'm built to come off the bench. I'm a captain. And so the very role that he saw me as, I fought it for four years. <laughs> and then sometimes they say, don't be careful what you pray for. Yep. Yeah. Guys, I would go to an NBA game, a rookie year, and I would be so exhausted. Some games I wouldn't even warm up. I was that exhausted. Hmm. And I really ate crow for a whole year. And I confessed yeah. this to him last year. That man, if I'm your starting two guard in the NBA, your team's not gonna be. Mm-hmm. If you bring me off your bench and play me about 10 to 15 minutes, <laughs> so, but I can say that now as a 51 year old man, mm-hmm. and if I would have bought into that, you know, in college, college would have been better, my coach and I would have got along better, and I probably would have had a better pro career. If I just would have accepted my role yeah. and mm-hmm. trusted my coach, but something called those self-preservation, your own goal. Every parent thinks their kid's the best. Every parent thinks that. And, you know, my parents were pretty, pretty blunt. My dad was like, look, if you can help that man win, you're going to play. <laughs> you know, he was that guy. You know, but yeah. when I left college, my dad was like, you know what, I don't think you reach your potential. And so there was a little give and take. And my coach apologized to me for some things. Um, but, you know, it, it was a great experience. And as crazy as it sounds, that struggle on the bench and still making it to the NBA is my biggest blessing right now. Because now as a speaker, people want to know, like, how did you do it? How did you go from a college reserve to an NBA ball player? And a lot of hard work, a lot of pain, a lot of frustration. But I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about culture building. And don't forget... You know, when I went to my dad's high school, I'm this principal's son. And so I looked at high school differently. Mm-hmm. I'm not your normal kid anymore. I'm looking for the mm-hmm. teachers in the hallway. I'm looking for the truancy officer. <laughs> I'm looking for the bell ring with the fire drills. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't a normal kid because my dad was a principal. Yep. And so I thought like a teacher and an educator at his school. I didn't think that way at my first high school. So when I left my first high school, I failed. But when I got into this new environment, it was like a, a, a expedited experience. But man, in two years, dude, I grew and I matured and I blossomed mm-hmm. like almost like incredibly. And it was his decision. And that's the one thing I tell leaders, man, you know, you can't be afraid to shift. Yeah. If something's not working, change. My dad came to me. He was like, and it was his idea for me to go to the high school. So when I failed, he took some responsibility. He's like, look, son, we got to make a shift. You're struggling. We got to get you into a new environment, right? And so that taught me a powerful lesson. If something's not working, if you're not getting the result you want, we are committed to results, not to processes. <laughs> Let's make the adjustment, halftime adjustment, right? That's what a good coach does. They go into the locker room at halftime and say, look, man, that game plan I came up with earlier. <laughs> I screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> Second half. And, and honestly, you know, those pivots and those shifts has really taught me a lot about life. And so the coronavirus, my company, we pivoted and we shifted. 
and it's been beautiful. Yeah. Mm. It's awesome. Well, Walter, one <laughs> yeah, one more question. What is your why? What what gets you going in the morning when your heat, feet hit the floor? What is your why? You know, why do you do what you do? You know, you know my why. I um, I hate seeing average. Mm -hmm. I hate average. I mean, when I think about what really gets my goat, I hate average because for a long time I was average. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I was a C student. I was a college reserve. And for a lot of times, I was just stuck in this place called average, and I was able to bust out of it. And a lot of it had to do with mentoring and coaching and me getting sick and tired of being average. So when I think about what inspires me as a motivational speaker, mm -hmm. I hate to see average. Yep. You know, I don't want an average athletic director. I don't want an average school district. You know, I don't want to have average teachers, right? I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to be average. I want to look. I want it to be a bestseller. Right. We, we got a new teamwork methodology we just created. You know, last week we talked to Procter & Gamble. We talked to Honda. Yeah, I don't want to be average. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go and play with the big boys. John Maxwell, bring it on. Yeah. Right. Tony Robinson. <laughs> you know, we got a head start. I, NBA got in my way. Y'all had a 10, 15 year head start. Bring it on. <laughs> right. And so we're talking to these big companies about teamwork. And I'm making the argument, dude, you can't build a team without a blueprint. Mm -hmm. When I left sports, we talked teamwork. When I got into business, they taught leadership. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's a leader's job? To mm -hmm. build a high-performing team. So we yep. created a blueprint to help business leaders build a high-performing team. Yep. The funny thing about sports, we all had a blueprint. You're going to have a quarterback. You're going to have a running back. You're going to have wide receivers. Nobody's going to have 15 left tackles. <laughs> right? <laughs> not gonna have, and everybody has a different function. So when you get into yep. business in corporate America, they don't understand the intimacy of how you express yourself at work. They just hire people, and we created a blueprint mm -hmm. that can help their company be more cohesive, collaborative, mm -hmm. and just yep. function better. And it's yep. all based on what I know about sports. And we had yep. curriculum designers and psychologists work on it. But the core of it is five guys playing basketball. <laughs> Growing up in Chicago, when you went to the park, you had to build chemistry with strangers. And yeah. you walk in the park, you'd be sitting there for another hour. So yeah. you built chemistry instantly with total strangers. So that's how I think. And imagine companies and athletic departments and school districts. Imagine if we had chemistry in the athletic department, not just yeah. the basketball court, in the athletic department. The coaches had chemistry. The athletic directors had chemistry. The superintendent had chemistry. The principals have chemistry. The parents have chemistry. That's how you build something special. You got to have a blueprint that's going to build chemistry and collaboration. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap this thing up here, Walter. Really, it's been great to have you on. Just uh, really appreciate all you shared. I actually, when I saw when working on the script and Todd to put me as a closing thought. I actually put the words choose forward in there as a, as a direction I wanted to go looking at this from a perspective of, you know, we're, we're going to start fall sports here and kick off the 2021 school year. And there's so many um, things that are wrapped up in the start of the school year in Iowa and the start of athletics. And, and some of those things are out of our control. People way above our pay grade, making decisions about what we can do, when we can do it, how we should do it. And, and our job now is to take all that information and, and bring it to our teams and our coaches and our kids 
And I just was thinking about this over the weekend. I'm like, man, Aaron, none of that matters anymore. Come 6 a.m. Monday morning, August 10th, man, we've got to move forward and we got to make it work and figure out a way to make it work. And then I put those words down and then I'm watching again. I was watching that, uh, that little 10 minute promo on you and you're talking about that shark and man, the shark swims backwards, it dies. Got to move forward. Um, and it just really hit home with what I've been thinking about all weekend long, which is I can get all hung up on whether I agree with the governor or not, whether I agree with the Department of Public Health or not. I can get all hung up on all that stuff where I can decide here's the hand we're dealt, yep. how we're going to move forward and make the best of it. And we've got to do that as ADs and coaches and leaders in our schools starting tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., choose forward, not the other stuff. That's my lead into closing thoughts. Well, you know, great, great setup, great analogy. And um, the way I look at it, you know, as a coach, nobody expects to go to triple overtime. Mm -hmm. But if the game goes to triple overtime, you don't just quit. Mm -hmm. You keep coaching. <laughs> we yep. have a couple guys fouled out. <laughs> hey, you know what? The coronavirus is sucker punched all of us, right? Yep. Nobody saw this coming. Yep. But to me, instead of having a bad attitude or getting frustrated, hey, let's triple overtime. Let's go. <laughs> let's just keep competing. And you know what? This is going to be one of those things that we look back on in time. It's a gift if you really think about it, because it's forcing us to reset. It's given us a lot of us a chance to be at home more with our families, kind of get out of this little grind and this little rut of just just same old, same old. And the worst thing we can do right now is nothing. The worst thing we can do now is stay the same. Mm -hmm. And my thought is, man, this is triple overtime. That's all mm -hmm. it is. And in my industry, for example, I'm thankful because I've been able to work on some stuff that I was so busy I couldn't get to. Yep. <laughs> so if, if I'm an athletic director, you know, and then we're doing virtual school or whatever my school district is, 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 is approaching the school district with, another of my sacred six and swim is that sharks always look up and never look back. Mm -hmm. Think about that metaphor. Sharks are positive. They always look up. They never look down. You ask mm -hmm. any diver, you got people who dive with sharks for a living. They know to stay beneath the shark because sharks mm -hmm. only look up, they don't look down. So, for athletic director, the metaphors be positive. Mm -hmm. What is the positive benefit of coronavirus? What's the positive benefit of, of virtual school? What's the positive benefit of us maybe playing football in the fall or not? Mm -hmm. What's the positive benefit of whatever the governor does, whatever comes our way? What's the positive benefit of it? And if you focus on the positive, you're going to come out okay. If you focus on the negative, people are going to feel it. Right? They gonna, you're going to exude it through your pores. And you're trying to be a leader in an example setting. What a horrible example. And I've had coaches and leaders who are negative. I don't talk about them. You didn't hear about them today. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear about not one of them. Because I don't talk about them. Wouldn't talk about them. I talked about Jerry Sloan, who was very impactful. I talk about my college coach, Tim Haskins, very impactful. I talk about my daddy, very impactful. Impact players who were positive and taught me work ethic, mental toughness, and how to pursue. Had a whole lot of people in my life. But people who didn't have impact, I don't talk about. And the truth is, your students are looking for impact players. Your coaches are looking for impact players. And so when you go to work, if you don't have a good attitude, you won't be an impact player. 
but you're going to have a bad impact. And they're going to say, man, my AD was a jerk. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I had AD. He was horrible. Terrible. She was terrible. I'm an equal opportunity. I ain't sexist. She was terrible. He was terrible. Or it was terrible. Whatever category you fall in. <laughs> my lighting is all off right now. I lost the sun right now. So I'm kind of in the dark. But <laughs> the point <laughs> is, <laughs> uh, whatever comes my way, honestly, as long as the playing field is even, let's go. <laughs> as long as the playing field is even, I can compete. And everybody in Iowa is dealing with the same playing field. Everybody in your state, wherever you are, they're going to deal with the same playing field. Everybody in your conference, they're dealing with the same deck of cards. That's fair. Well, I'm competing with that's my That's my message. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Excellent. Well, Walter, thank you. Uh, this yes, has been you. a blessing. It's been a treat. And uh, I know we're all better because of it. So uh, thank you so much for taking your time. To your wife for allowing you to take time on an evening when you're home uh, to spend time with uh, three guys from Iowa and talk about leadership and sports and how we can be better. And that's and, uh, we appreciate you taking the time. And, and helping me find that night. I mean, this, this is what I do. And helping me find that 1993 Geo Metro in Minneapolis, <laughs> America. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, that, Scott, next time just leave some breadcrumbs or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I think, you know, I'll, I'll just close with this too. I think that story, um, gosh, Walter, that just speaks to the kind of man that you are and the kind of man that you've always been. Um, that you would help some kid from Worthington, Minnesota, who's lost trying to find a car that you took time to do that. Mm-hmm. So the compassion you showed, wait, just that's why we don't know the impact we'll have on somebody, but we just be a good person, be a good man, be a good woman, um, no matter what. And uh, I was a fan for life after that. Yep. Let, 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 let me say this, and this is appropriate. These are my final words. You know, my family had two core values. You know, my dad was a go-get-it son. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. That was him. Go get it. I mean, you mm-hmm. talking about a guy who grew up in the segregated South. Go get it. My mm-hmm. mom was a kindergarten teacher, and she was gentle and nurturing, and she would just say, be sweet, baby. Just always be sweet. Just be <laughs> people. So that's what I got trained. Go get it, son, and be sweet. Be mm-hmm. sweet. And go get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- those two core values, honestly, have served mm-hmm. me well. I mean, yeah. I, I've done well in sports. I've done well in business. And I just believe in being a good person, being kind mm-hmm. and respectful and working hard and being aggressive and having big goals and big dreams. It's not any more than that. <laughs> I got yeah. I got a yeah. step process. Be nice to people and bust your butt and just see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Well, you listen to your mommy and your daddy. Man, that's great. Well, God bless you guys, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, we'll we'll see you guys soon. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to encourage our listeners, uh, get a hold of Walter's book, Swim. And if you did not watch uh, the video that is associated with that, I shared that just on our our Twitter page just a little bit ago. Uh, Man, listen to that, because Walter tells a lot of stories about his dad in that And his, how it all got started. And it's a great story, very motivational. And then uh, subscribe to him on YouTube. Keep watching his stuff on YouTube and uh, give him a follow. We'll include links to his uh, Twitter 
and everything in the show notes. So get a hold of the book Swim. It's in my Amazon list, and I'm ready to get it purchased, Walter. So thank you. Oh, and, thanks, uh, guys, man. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Scott, Aaron, good luck with you guys, the Jaguars and the Cougars. You get started tomorrow. Good luck to all our listeners out there as, as their teams get going. Uh, remember, choose forward, look up, and be positive. And most of all, folks, be blessed. We'll talk to you next time.